Hi, I'm Nicole Ferraro, and this is The Divide, a podcast from Light Reading exploring the ongoing digital divide, why and where it still exists, and what needs to be done to get people everywhere connected to reliable high-speed internet. Today, I'm joined by Sam Sanders, founder and CEO of Uprise Fiber, a two-year-old ISP based on the West Coast. Uprise was launched with the goal of becoming a new option for high-speed, affordable internet for customers that aren't happy with incumbent service and to address the lack of broadband access for marginalized communities. Sam and I discuss Uprise's model of partnering with developers and leveraging existing fiber, as well as how the company sets itself apart from traditional ISPs and how his company seeks to build digital equity into broadband deployments. Sam, thank you so much for joining me. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Nicole. It's my pleasure. So to start off, can you just tell me a bit about Uprise Fiber? When was the company founded? Uh, Where do you guys currently provide service? Uh, So Uprise has been in business for just over two years. My team has been together for about 10. So we all met at a previous independent ISP that was based in Portland. And I was working for Comcast prior to joining them. And um, basically just kind of saw an opportunity in the market for another provider that in Portland, it was really just Comcast and CenturyLink. Um, Having dealt with customers um, under the Comcast brand, I had heard a lot of feedback about how customers felt about the options in the city. And so it kind of got me thinking about what else is out there. Um, And so, yeah, we've we've been together about a decade. Um, We built that company in Portland, ended up working with the hedge fund and went through rounds of capital and ended up going through some mergers um, and just kind of the company sort of got acquired um, and we really didn't like the corporate direction it was heading in. So we decided to um, get the game, get the band back together and, and uh, go back after that market, I think of, of being another option for, for customers that are not, uh, that aren't happy with the incumbent service they have access to. So what are some of those problems that you were trying to solve uh, based on what you knew <laughs> from those Yeah, you know, they're pretty common. Um, you know, there's a list of, of eight or nine things that everybody hates about their internet provider for the most part. Um, you know, the cost um, being unpredictable, you know, mm-hmm. changing, requiring contracts, having mystery fees, um, you know, having a difficult time accessing help when you need it having to wait for installations, you know, it's really fairly common. Um, and it was kind of baffling to me working for a, such a huge company like Comcast that some of these questions that seemed relatively easy to, to solve, um, there was no will towards mm-hmm. solving them. And, and you know, the sheer scale of companies like that, it makes it really hard to be responsive to customers. So, um, you know, for us, we looked at markets like Portland and Seattle and places where there's a tax, uh, you know, a tech, tech savvy populace but no other option. And right. um, and that really worked for us. And we came in and we said, hey, you know, we can do this cheaper. We can leverage newer technology. You know, we can be more nimble with new products that come to market. Um, you know, what developers are looking for, what cities are looking for as far as, um, you know, delivery to customers. Those are all questions that have answers. It's just a matter of, do you have the will and, um, and the expertise really to do it? So, we went into markets like Seattle, Portland, um, California, because we're West Coast based. Um, you know, now we operate in those same markets uh, as well as Nevada, um, and we see the same kind of things in, in a lot of these markets. That there are very few areas where, even in really dense core <clears throat> tech areas, you know, San Jose and you know the Southern Bay, Palo Alto, um, same boat that you're in in places like Reno, Nevada, or Bend, Oregon, or you know other places like that. It's a pretty endemic problem. And, you know, the idea of broadband access, um, 
you may have access to broadband, but particularly when it comes to you know marginalized communities or or low income areas, is that really access if it's eighty bucks a month and you know you can't quit if you move or things like that? That's not really access. So that's kind of where we're trying to trying to aim the company. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's great. Um, so let's talk about some of those areas that you've you've moved into and how you determine what areas to service. You've touched on it a little bit, but I'd want, I'd love to get a little bit deeper. Are there certain criteria that you need in place, whether it's existing infrastructure or particular policies or a certain percentage of underserved individuals, or even you know some states have broadband offices and some don't. Um, and when you enter a new community, you just mentioned um, digital equity. Uh, how to what degree do you prioritize? digital equity um, in your work? So there's a couple of different kind of factors that we do. So first and foremost, as a business, as a privately held business, we have to find um, partnerships with developers. It's kind of first and foremost that are building new construction. For us, the cost to deliver service to those kind of places are really low and those act as really good anchor places for us. Um, so we're not really in our particular model, we're not bound to a specific geography, um, because there is so much fiber in the ground from so many different providers, whether they're telecom providers or natural gas, the city typically owns a lot of fiber. Um, most cities haven't figured out how to leverage that yet, but, um, but so we'll, what we'll do is, for example, if we look at a new, a new place in North Seattle that we haven't served before. We have, um, there's a kind of an entire market of brokerage firms and, and kind of third parties that all they do is identify on fiber maps where fiber is, who owns it, um, and help negotiate lease access to that fiber. So for us, if we get an opportunity in a new community, we'll look at the numbers and say, okay, this is a, you know, big apartment complex. Um, it's got 500 units. It's, you know, this distance from fiber. We kind of run our economics based on that and kind of give it a, a go, no go uh, based on a certain kind of rate of return as far as the investment itself for us. And then um, once it passes that mark, we'll look at, OK, well, where is it located? What's around it? Can we build fiber off of it um, to reach other communities, existing communities or other new construction projects or <clears throat> institutional you know, schools, things like that um, when it comes to the longer term? So the challenge, um, I think, when it comes to equity is where you overlap with the cities. So very few cities at this point have any kind of policy around providers like like ourselves that just mm-hmm. do Internet service. So most franchise agreements that are in place right now, even in pretty advanced cities, um, are really they're built back in the 70s. They're built for public access TV, um, you know, funded by the Universal Service Fund, things like that. Because the internet space is still relatively unregulated, um, there isn't really a, a formula in a lot of cities. Google Fiber is really one of the first providers that put forward franchise agreement offerings um, just because they were only doing internet service. However, that was tied to, you know, this whole <clears throat> um, tax benefit, you know, all the other things that Google Fiber tried to, you know, negotiate from cities Um that never really happened in a lot of places and there still isn't a formula in a lot of places. So that's a challenge for us. And that really, I think, is where the equity piece enters in. Um, You know, under my previous brand, I started talking to some school districts about, um, you know, hey, there are some school districts in Portland, for example, that 100% of the students qualify for free student lunch. Um, You know, I talked to a couple of districts where the average income for a family was $21,000 a year. And you're right. (laughs) I'm like, 
that that family is not going to be able to afford to pay, you know, whatever the incumbents are are asking of them for internet access. And if you don't have internet access, you know, so much of school is done online now, and you know, getting your grades is all done online. All this stuff, uh, meeting with your counselors, oftentimes, particularly with COVID, but even before COVID, um, you know, thirty percent of kids, forty percent of kids in some of our districts don't have internet access at home. How are you supposed to, you know, do anything? when it comes to school. So that was a talk we started to have with some school districts. And I think that is, that's really one of the models that we're trying to bring to the table is as we enter a new market and we talk to the cities and they come back and say, well, you're kind of in an unregulated space. Um, so, you know, go ahead and do your thing. And what I'm trying to do is say, hey, no, you know, I could do that, but let's let's figure out a model. Let's create a formula. I like to think that I'm not going to be the last independent ISP that you talk to. So let's create, right? Let's create a model. And, and the typical franchise model is, okay, you pay 5% of your gross revenue to us. We'll take that money. We'll build, you know, public uh, TV or we'll build whatever it might be. Maybe a few community spaces where there's free internet or something like that. Um, I'd like to, I think that I see that as a huge area of opportunity where we can work with cities and do something different where we can say, hey, you know, 5% of my gross revenue as a small company is not going to have any impact. <clears throat> Just realistically, I just, you know, it's going to take me years and years to grow to enough where that money is going to be substantial. But what I can do is say, hey, I'm building fiber from here to here. It's going right past this elementary school. It's going right past this fire station or, you know, whatever it might be. Um, let's create kind of an equitable partnership where we can offer some real benefit um, that's not just financial and is more transformative for the communities that, you know, if we're building fiber to get from point A to point B and we're passing you know, five or six, you know, affordable housing uh, properties that maybe, you know, maybe they have access to some of these programs that these, you know, incumbents offer, but maybe there's an opportunity to do something else. Um, and as far, even as far, I went down the road of creating kind of a curriculum for um, for schools that right now, when you look at, um, and Oregon really is kind of our, you know, where I, where I grew the previous company, so I'm more familiar with their policies, but in Oregon, the, they have a, you know, community technology component that, High school students can gain college credit through the community college systems, but they don't teach anything about the internet. You know, they have coding and they have some other technical stuff, but there's no networking. You know, there's no fundamental aspects of how the internet functions. And I view that as a massive area of opportunity that, you know, these, these entry-level jobs, even if you have a, you know, a basic understanding of fiber are, are $50,000, $60,000 with the incumbents, right? So you look at families making $21,000. And your kid can exit high school, with, you know, in a two-year college degree, ready to make sixty or seventy thousand dollars in in telco, and that's transformative. You know, that's that's generational, right? So, that's kind of you know a long answer to a, to a short question, but I, I think the gap really for us is is we 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 are, don't have to pick specific markets, and most independent ISPs that use our model can really go anywhere, and as long as the, the box is checked of hey, we're going to make our investment back initially, great. The gap really is there that I think because, A, the, the cities and states now are getting access to broadband funding. Now these conversations have started to happen more than they have in a long time. But um, right now there's not even a formula uh, of how to do that effectively. And, and that limits, um, I, you know, in my opinion, I think having a strong private-public partnership element to this is the only way to really do it. There's not enough money coming to these states to build out enough infrastructure. Um, but if we leverage it wisely and we say, okay, you know, let's find some ways to partner here that are equitable, that have accountability, right? That have a structure. We're not just writing a check to some telco saying, okay, yeah, you're going to build out fiber. Cool. 
with no follow-up, with no process, right? Um, but I think, you know, if we do that correctly, and I think now's a great time, I think, in that, that even where the markets where I'm starting to have those conversations, a lot of these cities are like, oh, yeah, we don't have this. We don't know how to treat a company like yours. Um, let's start to think about it. And I think that's a great place to start. Of, um, if, these, if these cities and states don't know that they have another option to talk to, when it comes to partnerships, because they've been burned in the past, right? That we know that Verizon and AT&T and some of these larger companies have taken tremendous amounts of, of public funds. And what they've done with them is questionable. We don't right. really, we, we know some, and yeah. what we know is not great, right? Yeah. <laughs> not great. Yeah. And then, and that's and that's a barrier. That's a challenge that I've encountered is there. it's created a sense of distrust. Yeah. Um, customers already distrust these companies. And governments tend to distrust them because there is a, a you know a track record of of unwise use or just a lack of accountability when it comes to public funds for broadband and it has accomplished yeah. some good things right but but not as much as it should have <laughs> certainly not as much as it should have um we've been talking yeah. about this issue for quite some time and you know Fortunately, unfortunately, what it is what it is, the pandemic shined the light and changed the conversation on on what needed to be done. And um, you, you're, you spoke a little bit about funding for the cities and, and states. And certainly, um, I, I don't know to what degree you've been paying attention to the endless um, infrastructure talk in Congress, but it is making its way. This bill is making its way through with $65 billion for broadband. And um, from my reading of it, it seems to prioritize giving that money to the states to determine how to how to spend it, um, and it prioritizes to a bit um, municipal and local community providers like yourselves. Um, so I'm just wondering, and it also has a, quite a bit on digital equity embedded in it, um, although it's unclear to me yet um, how federal policies about digital equity trickle down um, to the communities. Right. Well, I get right. it remains to be seen. Um, so I'm just wondering um, your thoughts on what you know about about the bill and, and what you're hoping to be able to take advantage of from it eventually. Yeah, yeah that's a good question. Um, you know, I, I think like you said, how that moves from federal to state is going to be an interesting thing to see develop. Um, I like the idea of having the states and the local entities um, take the lead in that. Obviously, the closer, and this is just a philosophy, but I think the closer that you are to your customers, <laughs> the more effective you are in, in you know, meeting their needs. Um, so I like that aspect. I do think that you know, we still have that gap of the expertise lies, and not to say that there isn't expertise in the government side, there certainly is, but I think certainly the experience of building, maintaining, and serving, you know, broadband customers and broadband networks lies on the private side. And and that's the big question for me is, um, you know, sh short of lobbying efforts, um, you know, where how do we create space for companies like mine who are well-intentioned and have experience that can be brought to bear. Um, how do we enter that conversation? And that's a, that's something that I think about a lot as this happens. Is you know what we've seen in the past is the companies that have the ability to lobby and to influence politics suck up the lion's share of, of any kind of funding. And what and because, in my opinion, not enough effort is put into building accountability into that process um, and which I completely understand that we're resource constrained, you know, on the government side, we're always re resource constrained. So creating 
you know, a department of people to manage an investment of potentially hundreds of millions of dollars is challenging. And that's something that's not in, you know, it's not unique to broadband. Um, but that's, you know, part of my conversation that I had with um, the, the Lorette from Washington on, on Twitter recently, which is how we met, um, was around that of, okay, so we, we need the idea is to create some co-ops where it's a board of, you know, a couple of government <clears throat> members in a local community, maybe a local ISP, maybe, you know, whoever it might be, some community stakeholders um, that work together um, to create these plans and, and to create a system of accountability. To me, I think that's where we have to go. Um, there, there needs to be built into this. And I think Washington, it sounds like, is, is thinking about this in, in a really, I think, in a good way. And Washington state government has, I think, effectively done some stuff like this, more so than most places I see. Um, that idea of creating stakeholders, right, that obviously the government is a stakeholder. Um, you know, the whoever's going to be receiving those funds to to build out infrastructure with as a stakeholder. But there are, you know, tons of people in the community that never get a say in this. There are people that that run equity, you know, nonprofits that focus on equity, um, not just digital equity, but they're stakeholders too. And I think that, you know, if I could design the system, it would be that, that that from a state level, I would identify, you know, municipal stakeholders and and create those first and, and say, okay, if you're interested in this, you know, in this issue of, of broadband access and digital equity, um, we want to hear from you. We want to create these kind of, I would say, local boards to manage this, the rollout of these funds. Um, to me, I think that's that's something that I haven't seen. You know, I've, I've responded to RFPs for municipal feasibility studies. And um, what tends to happen is you'll have your local incumbents. You may have one or two independent ISPs in the area and then you'll have consultants and you know what's been created is this whole industry for better or worse of consulting firms that do feasibility studies right and and that's a challenge because you can look at a municipal build as a math equation and you can say okay we've got 35,000 homes in this small city we've got you know x amount of square feet right X amount of mileage of fiber that need to be built, and it will spit out a formula that will that will tell you this is not feasible. Um, you know, and if you start from that perspective of okay, how do we build a broadband network that gets to every single customer right out of the gate? We only have X amount of dollars to work with. It's never going to make sense if you look at it from that perspective. But if a group of people can come together and say, you know, okay, hey, here's how I've built a small ISP. I didn't have you know, a hundred million dollars to go build infrastructure. I had to be strategic. I had to think through, okay, we can build this portion and then we can start to build out as the revenue makes sense and go from that perspective. And I don't think that conversation is really being had, right? That Verizon and AT&T can afford to go spend a hundred million dollars and just lay fiber all over the place. But but a city's going to have to see a return on that. You know, that investment's going to have to make sense if it's ever going to happen again. Um, so that part I'm interested to see develop of, you know, what is the process? You know, once that check gets written to the government, or the state, you know, state or local government, what happens next? Who's involved? Um, you know, I think, and I think that would go a long ways towards, I think, restoring trust of if you're sitting at a table with, you know, people with different goals and different motivations to make this thing happen, um, but you can come in good faith and and have some clearly some clearly outlined goals of, um, hey, we want to build fiber into these specific neighborhoods. Here's why. You know, we 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 believe that this elementary school, for example, happens to have 
you know, a really low income community around it. Maybe we can make this elementary school a hub that we can build off of and create our own networks that way. Um, you know, things like that, I think, are, are very doable. The formula is there. But, you know, being a, how to figure out how we involve and create that conversation is, is really the gap that I see. Yeah. It's, I mean, it sounds to me like it could almost be a working group as an extension of the broadband offices that exist in the states already, where you're having um, not just the municipal members, but uh, members of the community like yourselves and other ISPs and other stakeholders who are gathering on more of a regular basis than potentially in, in these occasional hearings, which is where you hear um, people's voices alongside uh, the voices of various lobbyists. Um, so, <laughs> so there should be more opportunities to hear more voices. Um, yeah. so before I let you go, um, what are your plans, um, for expansion going forward, uh, and both for the rest of this year and next year, as far as we could possibly predict the future in this current life we live <laughs> and how mm -hmm. are, um, <laughs> fiber supply chain and labor shortages impacting your work? Yeah, there's definitely, you know, the chip, the chipset shortage is a huge impact. Um, you know, I think we're, we're seeing <clears throat> probably eight to 10 week delays on just about everything that we order that, um, that has chips in it, which is a lot of stuff in my industry. Um, on the fiber side, you know, the, the kind of the fiber materials and kind of the, what we would consider dummy materials um, hasn't really had a huge impact. I think it's, you know, like every industry, there's been slowdowns. Um, labor shortages hasn't really impacted us in particular. Um, because entry-level tech jobs tend to be fairly well-paying. And I think that's, when we talk about a labor shortage, I think it's more of a, at least the way I view it, is it's more of a uh, quality work shortage. And a you know if you pay people well, they'll work for you, it turns out. Yeah, that's the um, way I view it too, so, for the record. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not, not rocket science there. Um, <laughs> no. But you know, as far as expansion goes, I think that's, that's really where we are, is we are... Um, expanding pretty rapidly and working with cities. And that's, you know, that's really our inflection point is the business opportunities are there for companies like ours. There's so much development happening still, amazingly, in so many cities. And there's a massive housing shortage. You know, we don't see development slowing down anytime soon. Um, the challenges I think that we face are the same that we've always faced, which is how do we um, be a part of a movement of development that creates affordable housing? Um, that drives down costs across the board, that is still a very difficult thing. A lot of the developers that I work with are building luxury brand new apartments that are going to cost, you know, tremendous amounts of money. And, you know, and for us, we choose philosophically to prioritize the equity stuff and to prioritize access to the communities. And we do that by using those anchor properties, building outwards. We like that model. I think that could be an effective model for cities to use. Um, and that's kind of my goal is to, is to build internally, privately, a model that I, that we can use to hand off to somebody else, right. To transfer knowledge to communities that need it. And that, you know, as part of a digital equity conference in Portland a few years ago, and that was one of the concepts that I really walked away with, um, is, you know, being transactional versus being transformative and how we do that is through not remaining the sole source of, of expertise, but to identify stakeholders in the communities that we can transfer that knowledge to. Um, so that's really what I'm working on now is, is creating a formula. And, you know, here in Reno, that's kind of our, our first step. We're building a huge amount of stuff here. And so we're working closer with the city than we've, we are in some other markets. And a lot of markets in Seattle, Bellevue, Redmond, you know, places like that, 
each different city I have to go and talk to and introduce myself to and say, hey, here's what we're doing. And a lot of these people didn't realize that anyone else existed, right? But in Reno, what I'm trying to do is build a formula that I can hand off to other municipalities and say, hey, here's an agreement that I came to at this city where we're delivering all this cool stuff that is not just a check every quarter, right? But it's something really impactful. And if we can do that, I think, in one city and make it work and show that it's a healthy partnership for all parties, that's kind of my goal, right? Is if I can take that to other places and say, hey, you know, I've looked at your city. Yes, you have some big, giant, beautiful, you know, new apartment buildings. We'll serve those. But a quarter mile away, you have Section 8 housing. And no one's going to ever serve those. So let's figure out a pathway together to to do all of that. So, um, and I think that you know, if we can do that effectively as a small company, I, I see it can open the door to these other conversations where um, forming healthy alliances with the local governments can lead to healthy alliances with state governments. Um, and that you know, unfortunately, it takes time and it takes connections, which you know, smaller companies don't really have, and we have to build from scratch. But um, but that's my hope, really. My hope is that. Companies like mine and people like us and our team can create models that work. Um, they're going to have to be different, right? Based on different different cities, different states, different funding, different everything. But there can be, I think, a framework of, you know, here's our benefits. Here's your benefits. Here's the community's benefits. If we can make things a win-win-win for everyone, and it's definitely possible. It's super possible. We've done this. You know, we've done it. And it's just about getting in the door and, and letting people know that other options exist. Um, so that's really our driving force is, you know, finding communities where we can succeed as a business. Of course, we have to do that to survive. But beyond that, you know, there's so much opportunity, so much in, in every market. That's what blows me away is like you look at Seattle or Bellevue and these are like tech hubs of the world. And, you know, a mile from the Microsoft campus, you have apartments with you have apartments with DSL. People paying 80 bucks a month for 20, for 15 megs. It's crazy. It's crazy. And, you know, we're too smart. We're too smart to have it. Be like, so. <laughs> we, yeah, that's, exactly. That's my hope, well, at least. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm so glad you're doing what you're doing and that you you decided to stay in the space in a more productive way <laughs> and um, you're making a difference. So I'm, I'm really excited. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me and for allowing me to recruit you from a, a Twitter thread about municipal broadband <laughs> where I found you to begin with. Um, and I hope more people get to hear from you because I think you're, you're doing some really important stuff. So thank you so much, Sam, for your time. Thank you, Nicole. Thank you again, Sam, for joining me. Thank you as well to our producer, Tian Fu, for making this episode. Be sure to subscribe to the Light Reading Podcast for more episodes of The Divide, as well as interviews and insights from the Light Reading team. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.